Good morning, I greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let us remain standing for the reading of God's Word, the reading from the book of Isaiah. Let us hear from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, the reading from verse 1 through to verse 6. Isaiah 6, verse 1 through to 8. Let us hear the word of our living God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of God. Let us please be seated. Let's bow for a word of prayer, shall we? Lord God, how we thank and praise you for your wonderful life-giving word. It is more precious to us than gold or silver. It is sweeter than honey. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you, Lord God, that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you, Lord God, that your word is like a fire that burns within our hearts. Who can hear the word of the Lord and not proclaim it? We thank you, Lord God, that your word is like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Your word is like a seed that always accomplishes that which you've sent it out to accomplish. How we pray, Lord God, that you'd mercifully and graciously accomplish your will in our hearts and minds this morning through the reading and expounding of your word. We praise you, Lord God, that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We pray, Lord God, that you would deepen our faith, that you'd widen our vision, that you'd help us, Lord God, to learn more of you and of your will and of your work. And more importantly, Lord, that we would learn to love you and worship you and serve you more effectively. For we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah saw a vision of God. He saw a vision of God's holiness. And as he saw a vision of God's holiness, he saw a vision of his own sinfulness and the wickedness of the world around him. He was convicted of his own sin and of the world's need. Without a vision, a people perish. Without a clear purpose and without a clear aim to inspire our actions, a nation will perish. A people will perish. A congregation will perish. A family will perish. Without a vision, a people perish. This is the clear message of Proverbs 29 verse 18. Isaiah had a vision of God. But if you look in Isaiah chapter 5, you see, before he even had a vision of God, he had a vision of the world and the world's need and the world's wickedness and the world's sinfulness. In Isaiah chapter 5, from verse 8 on, you see how God, before he had this vision of God, he experienced the vision of what evil people do. Paul's vision of the world outside of God was that it was lost, blind, in darkness, under the power of Satan, bound, unforgiven, condemned, and guilty. That's the picture in Isaiah 5. Islam and humanism are curses of our age. 
egalitarianism, antinomianism, our curses in our churches, guilt manipulation and cowardice, compromise, escapism and defeatism are blighting our churches and our seminaries, are destroying our effectiveness in the Lord's service. Before we have a vision of God, we need a vision of the world outside of Christ and how lost and hopeless it really is. The English cricketer turned pioneer missionary C.T. Studd, he had a vision. He said, some like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Do you have a vision of the world's problems? Do you have any conception of the devastation caused by drunkenness, drunkenness and drugs, crime and terrorism, communism, materialism and loneliness? Deception and apostasy, immorality, the abuses of all kinds of evils, the selfishness, the greed, the hatred, the materialism, the loneliness, the deception, all of these things. Sin and Satan are cruel masters. Without a vision of people perish. We need a clear vision of the reality of a world in rebellion to Almighty God, en route to an eternity in hell, rushing to destruction. That is a vision of the world outside of Christ. But do you have a vision of God? I saw the Lord, said Isaiah, high and exalted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you see the Lord? There are three directions we can look. We can look inwards at ourselves, which is what the psychologists and Eastern religions are continually encouraging us to do. Look inwards. Find yourself. Well, Inward-lookingness is actually just selfishness. You can look outwards at others, which could be critical or compassionate. It could be positive or negative. But we can look upwards to God, and that is worship. Inwards, outwards, or upwards. We Christians are called to look upwards first. That puts everything into perspective when we see things from God's perspective. The important thing isn't what do you think. The important thing isn't what I think. The important thing is not what the polls say. The important thing is what the majority of people or majority of professors say. The only really important opinion out there in the world is God's word. What God thinks, what God says, what God's word declares, that is what's really ultimately important. What so-and-so thinks and says and believes, well, I think, well, I believe, we had Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa saying a while ago, he would never want to go to heaven if homosexuals weren't allowed to be there. He said, I could never worship a God who was homophobic. He says, my God would never condemn people to hell for being homosexuals. And I wouldn't want to go to heaven if homos weren't there. And so as we wrote in to the press, he doesn't have to worry. He's going to spend all eternity with them quite happily. With, a kind of, with all the false gospel with all the liberation theology and Marxism wrapped up in religious disguise that he gives, he doesn't have to have any fear that he'll be separated from the homosexuals. <laughs> Along with all the other people who have rebelled against Almighty God, he can experience just what a cool place hell is. People are obsessed with their own opinions. This business of my God wouldn't send anyone to hell who... Well, your God wouldn't because your God's a figment of your imagination. He doesn't exist. You've just broken the second command. You've made an idol. You've made a God to suit yourself. Well, my Jesus, well, I've come across the most bizarre things. Just in the last year, we had someone apply to join our mission. And I don't know how it came up because it wasn't on our questionnaire. We have quite a few questionnaires. But someone came up that she had had an abortion. Now, I know people who have had an abortion who are very repentant about it, hate abortion, are involved in the pro-life movement. That's one thing. But this woman was completely supportive and defensive and unrepentant of it. In fact, she dared to, after I didn't even deal with her, our mission manager had shown her the door, but uh, she wrote a four-page letter to me to justify why she had had an abortion. And her argument was that she had asked the question, what would Jesus do in my situation? She was convinced that Jesus would have had an abortion. Now, you know, that's idolatry. My Jesus would... And that's why I think this WWJ 
D is a lot of nonsense. What would Jesus do all too often comes down to subjective opinion of, well, I think, well, my Jesus would. Just, just idolatrous garbage. Let's have a WDJD. What did Jesus do? Or even better, WDJS. What did Jesus say? As in, in the Bible. What really matters isn't what I think. It's what did Jesus do and what did Jesus say? What does the Bible say? That's the issue. The trouble is many people don't have a vision of God. They have a vision of the magic genie who pops up and says, my wish is your command. To many people, God is Father Christmas. He's just there to give us gifts. They might as well worship the man in the red suit or the magic genie because that's about as far away from the biblical Jesus as the one they're talking about. The amount of people walking around with, what would Jesus do? Bracelets. Absolutely bizarre. I've come across some of the most insane ideas just recently from people who reckon, well, I think Jesus would. And I won't even sully your minds with some of the dumb things because you've probably heard a lot of them yourself. We need a vision of God, high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy. The angels are not singing love, love, love. Holy, holy, holy. The essence of God's nature is His holiness. Without the fear of the Lord, we are foolish. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. And that's the problem. Most of our churches, most of our people, most Christians around the world, most of our seminaries do not fear God, do not have a holy reverential fear and awe of how awesome and mighty and powerful and holy God is, how God hates sin. He is a God of wrath, not only a God of love. He hates evil. He cannot tolerate and abide filth and degradation and evil and deception, which all too often we cherish and love and play with and make idols of in our hearts. How can God possibly tolerate all of that? I saw the Lord, says Isaiah. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus on whom our faith depends and not the Jesus of our imagination, not the Jesus of the hippie movement, not the Jesus of some seminarians and the Jesus of Bishop Tutu or any of these other weird people out there molding and fashioning an idol of their own imaginations and putting the name Jesus on it. That's not our God. Our God is the God of the Bible. Do you have a vision of who God is? He is glorious and He is infinite. He is without limitation. He is eternal. He is without beginning and He is without end. The Alpha and the Omega. He is holy and righteous, just and merciful. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is the perfect creator of the universe. He is the sovereign judge of us all. He is wonderful. He is awesome in majesty. What comes into your mind and my mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. No person is greater than his religion and no religion is greater than its God. Our concept of God is absolutely vital. God is far greater than any of us have ever imagined or ever realized. We need to study the Bible more to realize how great and how awesome and how magnificent and how perfect our God is who we worship. He is the living God who lives forever and ever. He rules forever and ever, Daniel said. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His power will never come to an end. He saves and he rescues. He performs wonders and miracles in heaven and on earth. Do you have a vision of what God can do? God can do a lot with a little. He created all things, seen and unseen. He spoke them into existence. He fed an entire nation in the desert for 40 years. He fed over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. He parted the Red Sea for an entire nation to pass through. He calmed the storm with a word. He raised the dead. Imagine standing in front of a tomb and saying, Lazarus, come out. How can a corpse respond to mere words? But the word of God is living and active and powerful. It can even bring the corpses to life. He heals the sick. He forgives sinners. He changes lives. He answers prayer. Our God is far greater than we can ever imagine. We need to repent of thinking so little of God and having such unworthy thoughts of God. We need a vision of what God wants done. 
You know that song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One? Heard an improvement. Count Your Blessings, Name Them Two by Two. Count Your Blessings, Name Them Four by Four. Count Your Blessings, Name Them by the Score. And it will amaze you, but there's millions more. And then I heard an improvement on that. Count your obligations, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord wants done. <laughs> Counting our blessings is good. Counting our obligations and our duties is actually even better. Have you heard the call? Isaiah heard God's call. I've met people throughout my life as a missionary. And I've been involved in missions now for most of the 31 years I've been a Christian. The amount of times I've heard people saying, I made myself available to God. I said, Lord, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to go anywhere. But God never called me. Now, look at this person who inevitably looks like a materialistic, self-centered individual. And I think, you know, isn't this amazing? Here's this person whose motives are as pure as the driven snow, who's so dedicated and sold out and abandoned for Jesus, but God slipped up on calling this person. That's basically what they're saying. God's calling. A lot of us just aren't listening. Sometimes people say, why hasn't God called enough people to fulfill the Great Commission? Oh, God's calling. But we're not listening. So often it works like this. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I answered, here am I, Lord, send my sister. <laughs> That's the new contemporary English version. Now, God is speaking. When last did God speak to you? When last did you hear his voice? What did he say? Did you obey it? We need to hear the voice of the Lord calling. Paul saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And the gospel came to Europe through the Macedonian call to Paul. St. Patrick of Ireland had been a slave in Ireland. He had escaped from Ireland. Young teenager taken across, forced to look after pigs and working there as a slave in Ireland. He escapes. He's back in England. And he sees a vision, like the Macedonian call, of the people dressed like the Irish, saying, come over, walk amongst us again, holy child. And Patrick went back and he baptized many people. He discipled many. He drove out demons. He won victories. He debated and beat the Druids and the false religions there. And magnificent, virtually won an island. He had a vision of God. And he had a vision of what God wanted done. You think of Boniface, the Saxon in Britain who felt called to go to the Saxons in Germany and take the gospel and he became the father of Western Europe and Western civilization in many ways by winning the Saxons to Christ and beginning the most magnificent work of discipling the center of Europe. Or Pharrell to Calvin. Think of John Calvin, this magnificent author who had 26 had published one of the greatest books that the world has ever seen, The Institutes. And here he was planning a lifetime of study and more study and even more study and extra study. And he's just planning to go through Geneva one night. He's not expecting to be there any longer. Just going through Geneva to avoid a war that was going on at that time. And Pharrell, this great, huge, red-headed, bearded debater and evangelist, this fiery debater from Bern who had won whole cities to Christ. He had won Bern to Christ. He had won Neuchâtel to Christ. He had won Geneva to Christ. But he knew his limitations. He was not a pastor or a disciple. He was an evangelist. He was a debater. He won the debates. Pharrell would go into the marketplaces and he would preach the gospel until they'd come to try and stop him on the order of the bishop and he'd challenge the bishop to a debate. He'd end up having debates which he always won. And he'd put it to the vote. At some point, if the people want to stay with papal superstition, if they want to turn to the Protestant faith, to the Reformed faith and the Scriptures alone, and inevitably the city would vote for the Protestant faith and he'd drag the bishop out, sometimes having to persuade him with his fists, which is why in the Great Reformation Wall in Geneva, Pharrell is the only one who's got the Bible in his left hand. All the others have the Bible in the right hand, but Pharrell's right hand is in a fist and his left hand's holding the Bible with his finger, holding the place in the Bible that he's just been preaching from. And uh, the people who did the statues and the Reformation monuments in Geneva knew their people. Pharrell was a fighter. Well, the day that Calvin came past, Pharrell rushed over there with Pierre Verret and tried to talk Calvin into staying to be the pastor of Geneva. Calvin was not interested. 
He wasn't gifted as a pastor. He wasn't called as a pastor. He wasn't capable of being a pastor. He was just a student, a theologian. He had books to write. He had work uh, to do and study. And besides which, there was so much more he wanted to do. And Pharrell tried every time of persuasion. And at the end, he stood up to his full length. And looking down with his piercing blue eyes across his red fiery beard, he said, may God curse your studies if you desert God's people in need. You are needed in Geneva now and if you desert this call and leave God's people in need, I will pray in practical prayers for God to curse your studies. And John Calvin testified that the fear of God came upon him. <laughs> and he trembled for fear to desert the call and he stayed in Geneva. And after two and a half years, he was kicked out for preaching too hard and refusing the libertines access to the Lord's table. And he went with joy out of Geneva, feeling he'd been released from a great burden. But in Strasbourg, after two years, Geneva felt they wanted him back, and I called him back, and he said he, he didn't want to go back. And it was with great fear and trembling. In fact, Pharrell had to warn him again. And then he went back to Geneva and had another 25 years of magnificent ministry there in Geneva. How much poorer the church would have been if Pharrell had not done his job in accentuating the call, turning on the thumbscrews, turning up the heat in order to get this magnificent man of God to channel his energies in the most constructive way possible. We need to see a vision of what God wants done. I think of David Livingston who as a young boy, age nine, had memorized Psalm 119 in full. The whole of Psalm 119, which as you should know, is the longest psalm in the Bible, longest chapter in the Bible. It's a lot to memorize. But it's the psalm that celebrates the Word of God. Well, he'd memorized this and stored up in his heart, and he won a New Testament as a result. Highly prized possession for poverty-stricken family in Scotland. David Livingston had to work for 10 years in the cotton mills, 14 hours a day, Six days a week, only day off a Sunday, from age 10 to age 20. What a tedious, boring assignment. But he was rejoicing because he was reading books, even while he was running between the machinery, had a book propped up on a piece of He'd snatch a sentence here and there, meditate on it. He learned Latin that way, he learned different languages. And the book that inspired him the most was William Wilberforce's book, Real Christianity. And he was so inspired by this that he decided to devote his life to the alleviation of human misery. He determined to spend his life fighting the slave trade and expanding the gospel. Now, if any of you have ever fumbled, you can take a lot of comfort from David Livingston because the first time he, he had his first opportunity to preach for the London Missionary Society after he had been studying, he blanked out in the pulpit, didn't say a word, fled from the pulpit without having said anything. And the London Missionary Society Board of Examiners said this man could never amount to anything in missions. He had no gifting whatsoever for missionary work. Interesting, considering he became Africa's greatest missionary, opened up the continent to the gospel, was the first one to proclaim the gospel in vast, unexplored regions. Well, he was planning to go to China. That was his goal. But one day, one night, he attended a missionary meeting of London Missionary Society, which is the missionary is training under, and Robert Moffat was visiting from South Africa, and Robert Moffat gave the vision of the smoke of a thousand villages that have not yet heard the name of Christ. And David Livingston instantly knew this was his Macedonian call. He wasn't called to China. He was called to Africa. And this vision of the smoke of a thousand villages that had not yet heard the message of Christ inspired him to keep on keeping on to persevere across flooded rivers, through swamps and across deserts and through jungle, past slave traders, through hostile tribes, to take the gospel further, further. He said, I'm provided to go anywhere, provided it be forwards. Livingston said, I don't think the word, uh, I don't think the word sacrifice should ever be mentioned in respect to anything we can do for him. Though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes. Said, say rather privilege, no sacrifice at all. David Livingston had a vision. Do you have a vision of what God wants done? Do you have a vision of what God can do through a person? When Dale Moody was a young person, he heard the challenge the world has yet to see what God can do 
with a man completely surrendered to him. And apparently he ran down the aisle shouting, I'll be that man, I'll be that man. You can imagine a lot of the older people smiling and thinking, poor little boy, what does he know? And yet Dale Moody was a person who was sold out to Christ. When General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was asked by Queen Victoria about the secret of his success, his response was, ma'am, God had all of me that there was to have. God had all of me that there was to have. Does God have all of you that there is to have? I remember when the, in the history books how it tells us how when King Clo- Clovis of the Franks was baptized, his warriors were baptized with their right hand and a battle axe out of the water. Because they said, we give everything to Christ, but not a battle axe. They still want to go ahead with that night. I think today people keep a whole lot more out from under the Lordship of Christ than that. The scripture promises in 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone makes himself clean from all these evil things, he will be used for special purposes because he is dedicated and useful to his master, ready to be used for every good work. Are you dedicated and useful to your master? Are you increasing your skills that God can use you? Are you always ready for every good work? Are you ready for that evangelism? Do you have the evangelistic tracts and materials and some copies of the New Testament and Psalms available in your car and in your briefcase for that conversation on the plane and with that person at school and the opportunity to follow up. Are you ready? Are you prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you? I don't think we realize just what an impact the ripples we set out there can have on a daily basis. One example of how one person can make a difference Right back in 1997, early in our work in Sudan, I'd been working there for two years, and the people were pleading for a hospital. And I'm not medical. I expended all my minimal medical abilities in just a very short time. Um, They wanted uh, medical help, and so everything I knew about first aid, I taught them in one day. Uh, Breathing, bleeding, breakages and burns, some few things I'd learned in the army and in the fire brigade, and... I trained up some chaps who thereafter became the beginning of the medical corps of the SPLA Freedom Fighters, a resistance movement fighting the Arabs in Sudan. And I knew we had to do better than that. So I was very much pushing the idea of the hospital. I was bringing medicines and paramedic bags, but they needed a hospital and I knew, goodness me, we need more than dealing with breathing, bleeding, breakages and burns here. There's some pretty serious, vicious wounds, they need surgeons, we need a hospital here, what can we do? Well, I remembered back during the Holocaust in Rwanda, I'd been in Rwanda and Kigali, and the only medical mission in the whole of Rwanda at that time was Samaritan's Purse, or Franklin Graham. In fact, to show you their dedication, I mean, Red Cross had fled, Doctors Without Borders had fled, the only ones there was, as they went out, Samaritan's Purse came in. In Kigali Hospital, where they were working, they had to clean out 7,000 corpses before they could begin their work. More people were killed in hospitals than anywhere else. And the second largest place of massacres were in the hospitals, and third largest were schools. Churches, hospitals, schools. Those are the main places where people were massacred in Rwanda in 1994. They couldn't even use the plumbing in the hospital because there were so many body parts and so much congealed blood blocking up the gutters that they literally had to climb in there with gloves and masks and just do what had to be done in order to clean everything up that they could use this hospital. And you can imagine the size of the rats. The rats were as big as cats. We had rats running all over the place and running all over us. And at night, we'd set up the mouse traps all over the place and the place where we were staying. And rats would still run over us. I mean, I had rats running over my pillow, over my sleeping bag, over my backpack, over my face, over my mosquito net. And we slept with a machete in one hand and a mag light, flashlight in the other and whack, whack, whack through the night. And as I said to one of our people, make sure you don't try and swat a mosquito on your nose with a machete. (laughs) Well, middle of the night you'd hear one of these mouse traps slam and everyone would cheer because that meant one less rat. They were all over the place. Well, I thought a Samaritan's person thought they're the right people to open a hospital in Sudan. So I wrote to Franklin Graham in America and North Carolina 
And I got back to normal, polite letter you get from secretary saying he's too busy and thank you very much and that sort of thing. Nothing we can do. Then I heard Franklin Graham is coming to Cape Town, my town, our headquarters, for his first and his only visit to Cape Town for an evangelistic crusade in Newlands Cricket Ground, which is the cricket grounds my dad used to run. I was excited. I wrote to the secretary again. I got back the same kind of polite letter saying, sorry, his schedule's full and no time and no opportunity and all of that. Now, I wasn't discouraged yet because I really felt this is God's timing. Coming to Cape Town this time, this is perfect. So I was praying and I, kid you not, within the hour, letter came in. I opened up beautiful gilt-edged card. Inside was an invitation from the mayor of Cape Town to a prayer breakfast at the city hall where Franklin Graham was going to be the guest speaker. God's timing. I made sure I was early. As a motorbiker, I was able to park wherever I like. And that's a great thing about motorbikes, you just park it on the pavement, on the sidewalk. And I was the first one in. There was Franklin Graham, the mayor, and one other person there. No queue, no line of people. I walked straight up, shook his hand, said, Mr. Graham, I believe you're also a motorbiker. Yes, he said, I am. And I said, and I believe you've spent many years training chaplains for the contra resistance fighters fighting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. He said, Yes, I have. And I said, Well, Mr. Graham, that's what I've been doing the last 20 years in Africa, training resistance fighters, chaplains in the Renama in Mozambique, UNITA in Angola, and the SPLA in Sudan. Mr. Graham, I've got one question for you. Why is Samaritan's person not in Sudan? He said, Well, we have been in Sudan. I said, Well, three years ago in Leo. He said, yes, but the, we found that you couldn't work with the Sudanese. It was a very bad situation. Now, I knew that had a bad experience up there, and I said, well, that's because you were working with Rishar's crowd. He's a surrogate for the government. He said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, Mr. Graham, I know the right people, the moral people. These people are disciplined. They're honest. They're honorable. There is no theft there. They are people who know about the work ethic. They were established by Reverend Kenneth Fraser, the first missionary to southern Sudan. He established the first hospital, first school, the first church. I know just the hospital for Samaritan's supposed to go to. It was the first hospital ever built in southern Sudan. It's still in pretty good shape. It needs a lot of renovations, but the buildings are sound. It's a good facility. It's very central. Give me a team, Mr. Graham, and I'll show you the perfect place for Samaritan's Post to establish a hospital. Well, by now there's a line of people piling up behind us. So he said, I'll have to speak to you later. And he brought along Ken Isaacs, his operations man. And Ken Isaacs was obviously not interested. He was leaning back, legs crossed, arms crossed. But within a few minutes, he's leaning forward, looking at our pictures and our maps. Uh, and interest was sparking. Well, about two days later, he phoned and he said, Franklin Graham has said, it's a go. Will you take us in in two days' time? I said, two days' time? I've got a mission to run. We've got priorities. Can't you give me a bit of warning? And he said, Peter, you've got a green light. Go through the intersection. <laughs> okay. I cancelled everything. And in two days, I was leading the people into, into Sudan. Well, there were four experienced operations men who had the advanced team to evaluate it. And they were all pretty cynical, pretty skeptical, done a lot of work in Africa, didn't think any place was worth it. Uh, they had a very, very, very negative view of um, Africa. Uh, they'd been there a while. So, as I was giving them the test me's about the moral are so honest, you could leave your wallet lying in the main street on opposite the marketplace and somebody would bring it to you and nothing would be missing. Well, on the Saturday morning, we were getting in a truck to head off there to Louis and I was going to show them the birthplace of Christianity in Southern Sudan, where Kenneth Fraser planted the first hospital, the first school, the first church, right by the slave tree where they used to tether up the moral people and take them off to the Nile River and up to Khartoum to the slave markets. And as we were heading out there to Loy, and it was going to be the first time any of them saw Loy, first time I was going to see Loy because they'd been under control of the Arabs a month before. They'd just been liberated. So this was a magnificent uh, opportunity. And as we were getting in the vehicle, Ken Isaac says to me, so Peter, do you still believe that rubbish about you can leave your wallet on the main road opposite the marketplace and no one would take a thing and they'd bring it to you and nothing would be missing? I said, yes. He said, good, give me your wallet. <laughs> and as we drove out, he threw the wallet out the window, landed on the main road, the dirt road, opposite the marketplace, 
and all of these Samaritan's Purse people laughing away as we headed off to Louis, and I felt sick. <laughs> and my heart was just pounding away, and I could not believe. I thought, me and my big mouth. <laughs> and I must say, I, I didn't have any doubt that the moral would be honest, but now I'm thinking, well, there's other tribes here too. What if a Dinka or a Nuera is coming past? I mean, uh, how do, could be someone from another village. I, I really believed in the integrity of the moral people, but ah, anyone could be coming past the main road. So at this point, I think the whole day I was sweating externally and internally and worrying and very uh, much grieving over this, realizing everything's hanging on us. I can see this is really important. Well, that night we came back, nothing. I don't know how much I slept that night. But the next morning, still feeling sick to my stomach, went to church and we're standing outside the church building there and Ken Isaac's people have just turned up and along comes Canon Rubin. He's the oldest man in the district. Canon Rubin was part of the Equatorial Corps, the British trained Equatorial Corps, black troops who were the protectors of the South who fired the first shots. His company fired the first shots of the war in 1955 when the Arabs, as the British were leaving, the Arabs told the Equatorial Corps to hand in all their guns and to be prepared to be transported by train up to the north without their weapons. And they said, you've got to be kidding. Seven out of eight blacks were slaves under the Arabs before the British came. We know you Arabs. You've always enslaved us. If you're wanting to disarm the Equatorial Corps, it's because you've got bad plans. So they shot the Arab officers and uh, stormed the stores uh, and began the resistance movement. And that's where the 50-odd year war began. Canon Rubin was part of that in the very company that began the war. Canon Rubin was a fine evangelist, wonderful uh, elder of the local church there. And he came along and he had two boys next to him and he said, these two boys found this wallet lying by the marketplace. And he opened it up and there's a picture of my ID there. And although all white people look the same, they thought this could be me. And, um, <laughs> and as they handed it over, I just saw out of the corner of my eye, Ken Isaacs and the other men, their jaws just about hit the floor. They were standing there with their eyes on stalks, amazed. They were impressed. I was impressed. <laughs> Those two boys could not have realized how much it hung upon their honesty. You know, the things that we do when we think no one is watching, well, someone's always watching. God's always watching. And we don't know who many other people are going to know it either. They could have thought, well, who would know it's a white man, he can afford it. Just, yeah. It wasn't just the plastic and the paper in there in several different currencies, which could have been more money than these children could have ever seen their whole lives. But within three weeks, Samaritan Purse was back. Within a month, the hospital was up and running. They were there for 10 years. In fact, Ken Isaac said at the time, we've never been anywhere more than six months. Normally, we're at a place for about three months. We'll commit to six months here. Well, they were there for 10 years. They treated hundreds of thousands of patients. They saved thousands of lives. Thousands of lives were saved. And it became the epicenter of a healthy economy. All sorts of things just developed. There's so many good things came out of this. But I am convinced they wouldn't have come there with all of the different opportunities they had if it hadn't been for this wallet being returned. Those two boys probably don't know to this day the impact of their honesty Imagine if they'd taken it, just thought selfishly, and ignored God's command not to, commit, not to steal. How many people they would have stolen from? They wouldn't have just stolen from me. They would have stolen from the entire community. All the opportunities, all the resources, their lives being saved, maybe their own relatives' lives being saved. How could they have known what hung on them? And everything is a test. Everything is important. There is nothing in our lives that is not a test and which is an opportunity we read in Judges that the Lord left the heathen amongst his people in order to test his people, see if they really loved him. We have tests around us. So many times when you think nobody will know, nobody will see. God's testing. And every temptation you resist will make the next temptation easier to resist. And every temptation you give into, make the next temptation easier to give into and harder to resist. Every decision we make, C.S. Lewis said, makes you more a creature of heaven or hell. In many ways, I think that could be true. 
Do you have a vision of what God can do through you? Don't reach the end of your life in regret over what could have happened. The amount of people I've heard, since I was young I've been hearing people saying what they were going to do, what they could have done, what they should have done, what they would have done, but what they didn't do. Normally because they got married is the excuse. (laughs) Well, I've been married 19 years and I found it didn't stop me from fulfilling the Great Commission. In fact, being married has enabled me to be more effective in fulfilling the Great Commission. If people want to make an excuse that, oh, I can't get married because that's going to interfere with spiritual work, that's just an excuse. We can make any number of excuses to prevent ourselves being available and effective in God's service. No, don't reach the end of your life saying, what you could have done, would have done, should have done, but didn't do because of whatever excuse. Make your life count for eternity. Redeem the time. Young people, let me beseech you, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time and mix it and Facebook and my face and all of these funny things that they've got out there. Don't spend your whole time just exercising those thumbs and fingers there with these silly little video games. I mean, what's that going to accomplish? I've come across people in their 20s still playing video games just incapable of seeing the opportunities. There are so many great books you could be absorbing. There's books that I am so glad I read when I was younger because I haven't had time to since and how it's enriched my work. It's equipped me. Learn languages. Improve skills. There's no skill, there's no language, there's no gifts that you can hone now that won't be more effective later. You've got more time when you're younger. Later on, you'll wish that you'd use that time wiser. You'll curse those hours that you wasted, those days that you wasted. Television can just suck up people's time, waste time, this endless amount of obsession with all kinds of rubbish on the internet and computers and spending more time having some electronic relationship with people far away and not having any time to have a real relationship with real people around us. Can't serve our families, can't serve in church, can't because I'm so busy on my face and Facebook and all of these things. Do you have a vision of what God can do through a church. Think of one church, the church at Antioch. The leaders were fasting and praying. And God led them to set aside Barnabas and Saul, two of their best members, you've got to be sure. What a sacrifice. Send them off the field. And yet, through those two missionaries, the gospel was taken to Europe. Now, lots happened since then through the church in Europe. And <laughs> just think of all that happened there. And it all started with Barnabas and Saul. And many churches were planted in Asia and Greece and much of the New Testament was written through the work of Paul and that was the work of one church. One church at Antioch had the privilege of sending out two people. How could they have known? What would have happened through all that? Napoleon, the great French general, once said, as he looked out on the map over the vast expanse of China, he said, there lies a sleeping giant. Or maybe it would have been more like, there lies a sleeping giant. Let her sleep. For if she wakes, she will shake the world. Now, if they could say that about China, what do you think the devil could be saying about the church in America? Or Omaha, for that matter? There lies a sleeping giant. Let her sleep. If she wakes, she'll shake the world. The church has such power at our fingertips. The gospel is powerful. We have the power to limit the forces of evil. We have the power to extend the kingdom of God Can we be really praying against evil? Can we really be fighting against evil if we see evil increasing? Greater is him who is in us than him who is in the world. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from us. Do you have a vision of what God could do through your church? You couldn't possibly imagine all the things that God could do through Small acts of obedience, sacrifice and service, faithfulness, prayer, witness. Incredible ripples can come. Massive impact. Whole history changing things can come from a few people who love God, who take his word seriously and who seek to be faithful and effective in a service. Do you have a vision of what God can do through a prayer fellowship? I'm sure many of you have heard of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He started the longest prayer meeting in history. They had a prayer chain that lasted for 
150 years. That's a long prayer The people who started obviously didn't finish it. But there was this ongoing chain of prayer. 150 years, 24-7. 365 days a year for 150 years. And during that time, their congregation sent out over 3,000 missionaries worldwide, including to Cape Town. I've been to the first mission station planted in South Africa. It's Kanadendal by the Moravian missionaries, right there, close to Cape Town. There's the building still standing. There's the gospel still going out. Incredible. Count Nicholas von Zinsendorf started a movement of prayer that launched missionaries into Greenland and the Caribbean and the Pacific, all over the world. Absolutely extraordinary impact. That little group of refugees in Moravia, what they accomplished at Herrenhut. Well, our mission started out of a prayer fellowship. Frontline fellowship began in a little prayer fellowship. And my first Sunday in the army, I was pretty discouraged. I wanted to be in missions. And here I was stuck, two years military service. I was not happy. I was feeling very discouraged. And then the Lord was speaking to me through the chaplain service that Sunday. that I'm in a mission field. Were there not pagans around me? Yes, there are plenty. Lots and lots of pagans around me. 2,000 soldiers around me. And there would only be 600 of them left after the next three weeks through the selection. But um, there were 2,000 at the beginning. And many of them, I knew we had a limited time to reach because soon they'd be off to other units. And I stood up at the end and asked the chaplain, could I speak? And he said, yes. And I turned around and there, 500 young men, all the same age, complexion as me, all shaven hair, heads, choking and coughing away. Look like, sound like we all had pneumonia. Um, something about winter call-up and doing press-ups in the pouring rain and mud puddles that does that sort of thing to people. So we're all there, spread out, and I said, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And I want to honor him during my next two years here. And if anyone else feels the same and wants to join me for Bible study and prayer each night, please see me afterwards. That was easy to say now, but I must say it was quite hard to say then. It was a bit intimidating. But afterwards, several people came to me and we started our prayer fellowship. In fact, I just had two other volunteers at the beginning. Two twins, Joe and Alex van Altenroos. Two tall German twins. And uh, they and I started the prayer fellowship out of which Frontline Fellowship developed. Soon there were eight of us. Then there were 12. By the end, there were 80 of us at the end of the two years. And this dynamic movement of prayer and Bible studies transformed our bases. Very soon, the main topic of conversation on our military base was Jesus Christ and the Bible. Every bungalow at one time had some prayer fellowship or Bible study going on at least once a week. Our main one kept on going throughout the month. We saw the most amazing things. People who cursed God were judged. I mean, we were praying and I started to see some amazing things happening. We remember one of the foulest mouthed blasphemous pagans in this unit. He is cursing and cursing God so often. One of our new converts turned and said, God's going to judge you. And he cursed again. He picked up his Coca-Cola tin and a bee on the tin stung him on the tongue. His tongue He couldn't say a thing. And everyone is laughing away how God's judged you. There was another really wicked pagan who used to take delight in being blasphemous. And one of the new converts also said, God will judge the stiff-necked. And sure enough, soon he broke his neck in the obstacle course training. And uh, he was in this neck brace. And the pagans are laughing at him saying, ha ha, God's judged the stiff-necked. And it made a big impact. All over we saw God intervening. We saw lives being transformed and miracles happened on the border. We had the most extraordinary things. I wasn't in this particular company um, where this happened, but there was this one platoon. They were part of our prayer fellowship, had quite a few of their members in our prayer fellowship. They're out on patrol and they're pursuing some terrorists and mortars started landing around them. These mortars. And, you know, there's a big, fat, explosive head and then there's the thin fins. All 12 of the mortars landed on their fins around them and none of them exploded and people got on their knees and gave their lives to Christ there and then and you can imagine the shock now it's, there's no chance of that happening, you try and throw darts and have it land in the feathers, aerodynamically physically impossible the heavy part lands first now some people later said well 
Maybe they tumbled through the trees. Well, sure enough, they must have tumbled through the trees. But all 12 of them, no air burst. Ground bursts are bad. They go up and out. Air bursts are disastrous. They go from down, all the way down. There's no way that you can escape. It would be more likely that tumbling through the trees, you could have an air burst. One of them detonates on a branch, and then you would have had uh, massive destruction. Twelve mortars landed amongst this platoon. Not one exploded. Now those sort of things happened. We had extraordinary, extraordinary uh, things happen. We know that God works through prayer. It's a very dangerous thing to pray. And the most dangerous thing of all is to begin praying for missions. Because very soon God sends you out to fulfill the answers to your own prayers. Think of those disciples that Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust out laborers into the harvest field. Do you realize that they were the ones that God first sent? The ones who, who prayed for har- harvesters to be sent out, they were the ones who went and started the gospel work. We prayed for our enemies. We prayed for the countries on our borders. We prayed for countries we were at war with, Mozambique and Angola, Zimbabwe. And very soon we were going to them and taking the gospel. Do you have a vision of what God can do through a prayer fellowship? The Great Commission should be our supreme ambition. The last command of Christ must be our first concern. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is the Great Commission. Make disciples, teach obedience. It's a matter of priorities. Have you got your priorities straight? Is it Christ first? Is it God's word central? Are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness so that all these things can be added unto you? Greater is he who is in us than him who is in the world. God gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. You can choose what you think is best, but it will never be anywhere close to as good as God's best. And that's true for anything. Whether you're talking about marriage partner, whether you're talking about career, whether you're talking about what you should do tonight, or what you should do tomorrow, or with your whole life, God gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Trust him. Follow him. Obey him. Don't care what other people say or think. Don't care what your feelings and opinions are. Your feelings are irrelevant. Your opinions are irrelevant. What matters is God's word, God's will, God's kingdom, his great commission. The will of God will never lead you, but the grace of God cannot keep you. Where God guides, he provides. You can trust God's will. You cannot trust your own. Without a vision of people perish, do you have a vision of God and what he wants done? It's a powerful word of prayer, shall we? Lord God, we thank and praise you that you are holy, holy, holy. We praise you, Lord God, that you are almighty. We thank you, Lord God, that you are our eternal judge, our creator, our redeemer. We praise you, Lord God, for the wonderful privilege we have of being your sons and your daughters, your soldiers and your servants, that we're part of your family and your army. Help us, Lord God, to be more effective in your service, to be more faithful to your word. Lord, Give us a holy boldness that we can win the loss to you, that we can be those who lift up your name and honor you. We pray, Lord God, that you would work in our hearts and lives that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.